Today, we're talking to Des Healy, the head honcho of Value for Money at the DWP, to find out what Value for Money means to him. Welcome to the 10th episode of VFM, the Pensions Podcast, and I'm delighted to be joined, as always, by my co-host, the one and only Nico Aspinall. <laughs> Hello, everybody. And of course, I am also delighted to be joined by you, Darren. Darren Philp. Uh, I've called you the busiest man in pensions for a while, but I'm getting there now. I'm getting there. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, exactly, exactly. And today, as Nico said, we've got Des Healy. Um, Des, you um, do DC at the DWP. You do ESG, you do value for money and productive finance. So quite a brief there. Yeah, it's quite a challenging brief, but um, yeah, pleased to be here. Good morning. Excellent. Welcome. Welcome. Great to have Welcome. you on. Uh, so I'm, I'm still feeling a little hoarse this week, uh, having shouted at the fantastic Arsenal. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> we did say we're not going to talk about um, Arsenal at all, but after the, um, what was it, 3-2? <laughs> it was 3-2. Last-minute yeah. goal, wasn't it? it was 96th absolutely. minute, yeah. yeah. And do you support a football team, Des? I do. I support Glasgow Celtic. Long story, but um, very... So, so you had it quite good for a while when Rangers got relegated in that, didn't you? Yeah. It was, uh, you know... It, it, it gave you that period of dominance. Yeah, I think they're actually liquidated rather than relegated. No, no, so, yeah, um, yeah. But happy to go into more detail it's on all that. about liquids, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, liquids, yeah. Isn't it? well, that's, uh, that's coming up. It is, it will be. <laughs> so, as ever, uh, we start these podcasts with the news and uh, we give guest prerogative to uh, to you, Des. So, so, what have you brought in for us to discuss? Yeah, well... Predominantly, it's really good to be here today to talk about value for money, um, mm. have a conversation around that. Obviously, we've got the consultation uh, that we launched on the 30th of January. Um, we haven't had any responses yet, but the roundtables with industry are under. The team are doing a great job with those, with colleagues from FCA, TPR. They're in full swing, yep. so we're starting to get some really good feedback. Um, I'm going out and doing a few conferences as well, so the consultation's really starting to come to life, and we're we're getting some yeah. good good input, and you're doing this podcast as well. Doing this podcast as well. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. And um, how are we going to respond to the consultation? Nick? Oh are yeah, we, are we going to respond to the consultation? Well, uh, incredibly creatively. Whether ah. whether um, whether the DWP will will uh, how they will respond exactly, I guess we can we can see from theirs. But um, yeah, so the plan is that we're going to record an oral uh, response to our consultation. Another um, special, another VFM With another special. special. Um, so uh, for our listeners, that will cover a gap when, Darren, you're, you're going on holiday. I'm going on holiday. Where are you going to? Uh, Lanzarote. Ah, lovely. Yeah. So you've got a week away. Uh, so that's like the first week of April, isn't it? Yep. Um, and uh, so we'll record it, I think, next week. So we're in time to submit it to you guys. We will give you a transcript yeah, we as will well, give you a transcript, yeah. It'll be an AI-created transcript, so <laughs> it could be quite... Um, Quite amusing. We'll take out the ums and the ahs, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and the talking over each other. No, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and the distracting ourselves with yeah, yeah. Uh, all sorts of other things. So, um, yeah, that that's something to look forward to, I think, for, hopefully for our listeners. Cool. Um, so our second special, we don't count them. This is episode 10 is or episode 11, 10. depending on how you go. It's actuaries. It is actuaries. <laughs> they just can't count. You yeah. know, it's, it's one of the big problems in, in pensions. So, um, <laughs> anyway, moving swiftly on, because yeah. um, I want to talk to Des about value. 
value for money. Yes. Um, um, what, have, what have you got for us, Nikkei? Well, um, yeah, so there was an opinion piece uh, in the Financial Times, I think today, yesterday, uh, which was Oliver Ralph. Um, so today, uh, actually today of recording, um, which is time to deal with the nastiest and hardest problem in finance, which I think is William Sharp. Um, uh, fame quote, yep. uh, and that is the problem of decumulation. So, uh, yeah, how on earth do you kind of take your money out of a volatile pot as you're facing your own uh, mortality? Um, so, yeah, you Can't know, you describe it like that, then. <laughs> well, as an actuary, you know, uh, we got coached very early on that it's acceptable to talk about death, and certainly death as a proportion of a large population is, yeah. is kind of acceptable. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, you know, we're, we're increasingly reliant on DC. Um, what happens in decumulation? Mm. So I think, I think the minister uh, spoke about this in, in the last uh, few hours, Des, as well. Yeah, I haven't seen what the minister said earlier, but I know it's, uh, you're quite right. This is going to be an emerging issue, isn't it? As DC mm. savers pots grow, how do we turn those retirement pots into pensions? Where, at retirement age, how do we make sure they're getting the right advice? Mm. Already in the feedback we're getting to the value for money consultation, the mm. issue of decumulation keeps coming up. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's something that we're looking at and we're keen to take forward different solutions. Yeah, and yeah. I think the Minister at the launch event of the value for money stuff and alongside um, however many other consultations that there, there were at the time, I think it was CDC and Small Pops also um, talked about um, a form of call for evidence or consultation or a paper on this in the yep. in the summer. So that's something to, to look forward to as well. Yeah, I mean, and I think um, you know, building on on kind of Henry's contribution or or maybe uh, kind of our reaction to Henry's contribution, that that kind of carving out of decumulation in the VFM, this first pass, mm. um, I think is is for me that's the first thing from phase two that you need to kind of bring in. Yeah. Um, because until we kind of work out how that money actually leaves a member's account, how on earth do you know what the value what, really yeah. was? Because it's all about the end outcome, isn't it? It has to be. Yeah. Um, to be. My one provider is what you've said there, as long as you've got a framework for retail in uh, phase one, but we'll, we'll come Oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> We're already onto our controversies. Indeed, indeed. Um, what have you got? What have I got? So... Um, we, 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 we covered last week the, the disappointment um, of the delay in the dashboard, um, right? Yeah. Which um, which I think the news broke on the day we were recording, and um, you know it was really good from DWP because you know obviously a bit of a disappointment. Thought we were going to end the week on a bit of a downer, and then I think it was four p.m. on Friday, the news headlines broke with um, DWP supporting the new private members bill by Jonathan Gullis. Um, and 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 that which was looking to implement two of the key conclusions from the 2017 mm. um, review of automatic enrolment, which we picked up on here a few times, um, redu reducing the age of auto enrolment to 18, and removing uh, band earnings. So that well, we so give it, giving the minister the power to make those changes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, so, but, but, but uh, what we've been arguing for from a, a, you know an industry's perspective is these these, these things always take time. You know, to, to plan and to implement and stuff, and um, you know, getting the timetable, taking the power, so you know we can do this when the time is right is a really positive step forward. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you had anything to do with it, Des, but a fantastic way to end the week. It wasn't uh, my team, but the team that's working on it did really well to take forward that yeah. that, that private members' bill. Private members' bills do have to go through a quite a, a different process through Parliament, but it's mm -hmm. passed its first stage, and there's, yeah. there's different stages that follow, but we're fully supportive of it. And, yeah, it, it, and we're really pleased with the reaction it, it got in the industry yeah. just on 
pension dashboards. Um, my view is it's better to go slowly and get it right than to rush something that's not ready. I, I think, I think, I think that's, that's right. Yeah, that's, view. Yeah. that's what we said. Like, you know, yeah. It is a disappointment. We have been talking about dashboards for a while, but but actually, you know, we've got one chance to get it right yeah. and to, to get some big data issues wrong right at the start. You know, yeah. I'd rather it be delayed by six months, a year, whatever. Um, do it right, do it properly, give consumers a good experience. Um, and I think that you know if we can, as, you know, as long as we don't lose momentum behind it, I think is yeah. the, the, the the key thing on that. Yeah, I feel very tangential to the dashboards uh, discussion, as you know, Darren. It doesn't stop me from commenting, but, uh, yeah, but <laughs> I'm certainly but, not an expert. But, but equally, you know, we'll have to sort of look at your lost pension pops, Nico, and you never know, you might get interested in the dashboard at some point. Yeah, well, uh, but I think the conclusion from last week is we can't wait for the dashboard before I do that. No, no, exactly. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, because we did talk about in the in our first episode, which maybe should have been a special, and we did reduce the numbers of everything by one, <laughs> <laughs> um, about whether, you know, I should go and look at the asset strategies of all the defaults I'm in. We did. Um, so, uh, yeah, tracing down the pensions and getting access to them, I think, would be uh, part of that. Cool. Let's put it that way. Cool. So that's the news. Um, so, Des, how did you get into pensions? <laughs> how did I get into pensions? That's a good good question. Um, so, yeah, it was really by by accident more than uh, design. I think that's quite a common uh, sort yeah. of response to that question. So just to give you a bit of background, I've been in DWP for nearly 25 years. Right. Mm. Um, the first half of my career was very operational based. I, was, I started by processing benefit claims, then progressed to managing the people who process benefit claims and manage job centres around places like High Wycombe, Slough, Oxford, Banbury, Didcot. Um, then became a partnership manager, so I did that for about 12 years, and right. I thought, actually, I've done all I can operationally, so mm -hmm. I'll go to policy and then uh, move to the centre. 2012, did all the welfare reforms work, uh, personal independence payment, disability benefits, um, appeals reform. Mm. Did that for five, six years, and then uh, as you do in the civil service, you go, okay, I'll, I'll try and get promotion. Yeah. And I was successful, and they said, and they said, where do you want to go? And I said, anywhere but pensions. <laughs> and, that, and the reason I did that was my dad um, used to be a member-nominated trustee, trade union trustee in the, in the electricity industry. And when he used to, we'd be on long drives, his pension stories became very dull and very boring, <laughs> and I just switched off. So I just thought, no, I don't want to go into pensions. But um, I joined the pensions team in 2016, um, and it was a good time to join mm. on the DB side. We were doing the green paper, mm -hmm. and then we took that forward the white paper. I ended up heading up the soup fund team, so we did the consultation there. I had the multi-employer Section 75 issues that yep. I was dealing with, mm -hmm. so um, GMP equalisation, which, oh, yeah. um, which was actually still my going. <laughs> yeah, still going. My first meeting in pensions, so already nervous about coming to pensions. My first job, you have to chair this meeting of the GMP equalisation working group. Uh, and I think that was on day two. <laughs> and I just sat there looking blank. But the, yeah, they're all very kind and very supportive, as everyone has been since I joined pensions. But the more, the longer you're here, the more you realise what, how this matters yeah. to, to people. Yeah. And, and all the, some of the problems are huge, they're really complex. They're, they're proper wicked problems, aren't they? That we're grappling yeah. with. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's a good place to work. And it would be great if you could start with a blank sheet of paper um, yeah. on some of this stuff. But there's so much history, there's so much legacy. Um, and, you know, you talking about super funds, DB funding, GMPs, just shows that there's a lot of historic issues that, that are still to, to address. Yeah, one of my other first jobs was um, ending the contracting out 
team. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. So I had to try and grapple things like anti-franking, yep. oh, uh, contracts okay. and out yeah. deductions, <laughs> all, all these wonderful terms I still don't quite understand. I can explain the COD now. I've, I, I managed to get my head around that. Contracts and out deduction. Yeah, the, the anti-franking. Yeah, no, it's, it's one of those ones that where Wikipedia is sort of your friend. That every time someone mentions anti-franking, you've got to go on the internet and just sort of look up what it is because I can never remember what it is. I, I took exams on this. Uh, do you? So yeah, as part of my uh, DB actuarial uh, fellowship exams, then there was anti-franking was in the mix. <laughs> it's knowledge that you're kind of crammed in and then dumped as soon as possible. And and, and are you here to stay, Des? Are you loving pensions that much that you can see? You know, you're going to be continuing seeing a lot of the reforms that you're working on uh, through? I hope so. Well, this is a good time to be in pensions with the value for money framework. So I did DB for five years and I, I joined the DC team late last year mm. um, and took on the productive finance brief ESG at the time of COP, which was yes. yeah, yeah. really exciting to be yeah. to be around then. And now we're taking forward value for money with uh, colleagues at TPR, FCA. So yeah, I'm, I'm, <coughs> I'm, I'm enjoying it. And hopefully we've, this is a really important piece of work to get right. I know we're going to come on to value for money, but mm. it's really important for savers. Yeah. And we've got a real chance to make a difference here, so it's a good area to work in. Yeah, yeah. yeah fantastic, fantastic. And obviously, so in the DC uh, ESG brief, um, at the moment people are maybe going through wave one, wave two of DCFD, yeah. so that's the Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosures. Um, so yeah, any kind of uh, sense of how that's going? Are you kind of happy with the results? So it's obviously TPR are assessing the returns. I think there's been a high level of uh, compliance with sc the schemes over five billion actually doing the returns, so they're working yep. through them. And uh, I understand TPR will be reporting on that quite quite soon, mm. which which will be good. Obviously TPR's approach, they've been clear, is they want to work with schemes to get these returns, mm. get get schemes into the habit of doing the returns, and then we want to work on the quality of the returns and make sure they're capturing all the right things. So it'll be interesting to see the outcome of the first review, but. My understanding is that compliance has been high so far, which is good. Good, so it's a good first step. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. And it's good uh, the approach that's being taken there, which is a sort of an evolution, um, because you know everyone's doing this stuff for the first time. Yeah, it's very difficult to get this right. You know, um, and I think that you know taking that sort of pragmatic approach from the regulatory perspective, learning from feedback, looking to sort of improve as subsequent reports are published, can only be a good thing for the industry. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and giving that kind of space for that innovation, for yeah. that discovery is, uh, you know, what is best practice in this space? Yeah, I understand that's what TPR are trying to do here mm -hmm. as well. Um, give good examples of what a good return should look like mm -hmm. so, so schemes can just continually improve. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really interesting the, you know, the kind of uh, maybe the difference between a kind of legislative regulatory approach uh, and then maybe what the green community is hoping that these these responses will say, which is, you know, we believe in the climate emergency, we're taking action, uh, there's a whole bunch of great opportunities for us. Uh, and obviously we're still in the space of exploring how on earth to govern climate risk, I would say. Um, but uh, yeah, maybe over time we'll start to get those kind of reactions. Mm. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how the green community kind of responds to that first wave of TCFD, which is kind of you know, establishing the foundations of what you do about this, as opposed to, I'm sure some people hope that there's all sorts of, uh, you know, kind of proactive clean energy stuff and like working in industry and, and, and trying to get that kind of transition embedded. Um, so yeah, I think that, that interaction between the industry and, and the kind of, you know, the green lobby, I think it's going to be very interesting. Yeah.
Thank you. Very good. Um, so, yeah, How, what is VFM <laughs> to you, Des? So, for me, value for money, quite simply, is for it's ensuring that every pound savers and employers, that's an important aspect as well, that's going into people's pension savings, it's working hard for them, it's going into a scheme that's well run, mm. has a good investment strategy, and simply the, the fees that are being charged to that scheme are not unwarranted, they're justifiable, and we've... We've introduced auto enrolment. Millions of people are now saving their pensions. People who don't really engage with their pension savings mm, don't even yeah. look at their uh, annual statements. So there's, it's incumbent on us as government and regulators to make sure that they can trust where their money's going, that yeah. these schemes are being well run, well managed, their savings are well invested. And if that's not the case, then action will be taken. Yeah, yeah. And there's a, there's a focus on uh, outcomes, focus on returns in the consultation. Um, so how do you think you know the sector is going to respond to that and then trying to think about you know we've maybe got 10 years in these vehicles and it's possibly a 40 50 year journey plus that that's kind of coming down the track responses we've had so far have been positive mm -hmm. I've, i think most people accept we do need some sort of value for money framework yeah. for schemes the dc market's growing it's continuing to grow it's if it's not already it is the problem form of pension provision here in yeah. the uk um, I think the calls we're getting is just be pragmatic and you can have a really complex framework. You could capture lots of data points, yeah. but is that really um, in the best interest of savers? Mm. So just make sure that the metrics you put in place are clear, they're comparable, and they add value. So that's a challenge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's what we're, we're trying to resolve during the consultation. And, and this can evolve over time, can't it? Like, you know, obviously introducing a value for money framework is a key milestone. Um, and you're going to have to legislate for that, I'd imagine, and re make some requirements on schemes to to publish various stuff and and that. But it it does, you know, and it's important to sort of have a good framework to start off with. But you know, as we get more data, you know, mm. as we get more experience, as we've been through a few cycles of assessing value for money, yeah, like you know, hopefully, you know, we haven't got something there that is just static and there's a, a one and done. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember where we're starting from. At the minute, there is no value for money metrics across the DC pension sector. Okay, there is some industry-led ones. Yeah. And, and obviously IGCs, um, you know. Have, yeah, uh, have exactly. But there, over this there's thing. not a standalone framework of, of metrics and service standards that, are, that allows for easy comparison across the market. Yeah. 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 So we need to have a good solid base. But as you say, not only will the, the value for money framework will have to evolve as a DC sector evolves, mm. Consolidation is already happening. Yeah. That's going to continue to happen. We're going to we're likely to see fewer larger schemes in the future, and then the framework will have to evolve to re reflect that as well. But at mm -hmm. the moment, it's for me and the team. It's about can we get the framework metrics in place that everyone says, okay, we see yeah. what we're trying to do here. Yeah. Government regulators, and we think not everyone's going to be happy because no one's ever happy in pensions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's a good place to start. Yeah, and I think um, you know from the discussions that I've had within the industry, and you know people on this podcast that we've had, um, you know everyone is supportive of the general direction of travel of the work. Um, <clears throat> you know sometimes there's nuances of views in terms of sequencing and how you measure stuff and how you get that standardisation. Yeah. But on the whole, I think you've got an industry that's behind you in terms of you know this is an important piece of work. 
And I think um, you know quite a lot. Of, we, we had Sophia on last week, mm -hmm. didn't we? Yeah. And we were, we ended up talking about the sort of relentless focus that there has been on cost, um, not just from a charge cap perspective, because it's easy to blame charge caps, because yeah, yeah. it's easy to blame legislation. I know that from my treasury days. Yeah. But actually, from a market dynamic perspective, whereby you know, for for, for certainly for larger employers, then you know, quite often we do see the decision making just being totally based on price. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, and Sophia last week said uh, you could get 20 basis points as a quote uh, if you are £100 million plus plus, uh, and potentially dropping to mid-low teens as you get higher and higher in that, that kind of spectrum. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So it's where the space is for, you know, let's say more sophisticated investment strategies. I think that's the, that's the kind of critical question yeah. here, isn't it? So yeah. How do we create that, that kind of space? Yeah, one of the things I really like, we, we picked up on this a number of times, like a bloke, broken record on some of this stuff, Nico, but the splitting out of the admin and the investment yeah. in terms of the, the net returns yeah. on that is um, a, a, a great um, a great step forward and I think um, really helps with sort of shining a light on some of the sort of transparency and the cross-subsidy between mm. investment and admin. Yeah, so I mean in our in our analysis, my analysis of the, the consultation response, I think I'm, I'm on record of saying I, I think there's 3,200 data points of performance that you need to kind of generate. Have I misunderstood kind of what you're 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 intending there? So so that would be um, some banding by uh, employer size, um, by possibly uh, contribution size or AM. There's that, that sort of discussion, um, and then by time horizon and um, then different uh, periods of uh, yeah. So time horizon by performance metric and then age. So if you multiply those all together, suddenly I've got like a phone book of, of data. Have I kind of misunderstood what's intended there? I think so, because it's worth bearing in mind this is a consultation. So there's right. questions in there. Yeah. So do we need, first question, do we yeah. need all these metrics? Yeah. That's what we're asking you guys. Are these the right metrics to have? Um, we've already been criticised for not putting more questions in the consultation. You know, uh -huh. yeah. touched on ESG earlier. So why haven't you explicitly included ESG in the service section? Uh, and then we're criticised for putting too much in. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. we're trying to get a balance. But if, okay, if you did take all the proposals in all the entirety, you may well have that number of data points. But yeah. a lot of these these questions we're just asking say, is this the right metric? If not, mm. then we need people to tell us. Yeah. And what yeah. are the, yeah, as I said, it's about getting the base. What are the right metrics to allow that comparisons to, mm. to be made? Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose, um, in the way, so are you trying to get to a sort of sensible banding and sensible grouping to sort of get that balance between, you know, um, intrusiveness of the data points mm -hmm. versus, you know, just having one number which doesn't apply to anyone? There's got to yeah. be a middle ground yeah. there somewhere, and that's what you're saying. There's always for. a sweet spot, isn't there? Yeah. And if everyone's disagreeing with the sweet spot, you've probably got it right. <laughs> <laughs> as long as they're disagreeing on both sides. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the, there's a few things in there where, uh, and it's not about the consultation, but it just reminds me of the kind of shocking state of the industry. So there's the point on chain linking yeah. of past defaults. And, you know, my naive mind goes just like, okay, so look at the member record and get out the unit history, the unit price history, mm. and then you can work it out. Mm. But obviously that's not being... That's not recorded in some ways, um, and um, you know. So, so essentially, that chain linking point is that the default has changed during the period, um, and yeah, you know, there's a number of points where you go like, wow, you know, <laughs> really, we you have to hypothecate these returns backwards, um, but but there's no kind of data. I think for me, one of the interesting kind of add-ons would be whether we can get to a common data standard. Yeah. Um, you know, one of is it the Australian example? 
when, when one of the big reforms that they did was to get a common data template yeah, so that right. everybody can be comparable, so that individuals um, and services can sit on top of the data and guide people between you know what's happened in the past tense in their in their pensions. So yeah, I, I, we're not going into the consultation response now, but uh, I wonder are you are you hearing that kind of that kind of story from the, the kind of uh, anecdotal uh, meetings you've been having? Just from the initial feedback to the roundtables that we've had. Uh, obviously, we're looking closely at what Aust- they've been doing in Australia as mm. well. But we're mindful that the two markets aren't directly comparable. There's yeah. a lot more advanced, mm. a lot more established, mm. you know, scale, etc. So we are looking closely at what the, what they've done in this area, but it's not, it's not just a direct read across. Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing that... Um, I think is really interesting in the consultation is the uh, the questions around benchmarking, uh, and you know, so do you go with a peer group? Uh, do you go with some sort of uh, you know objective measure? Um, do you then say like the Australians have that if you're below a certain proportion of the peer group, then you're an automatic red? Um, uh, you know, I think there's some really interesting stuff there to to kind of talk through as an industry. Mm. Um, just exactly. How on earth do you kind of come to making this a useful decision, useful piece? Yeah, uh, and uh, the other piece that we've we've discussed a few times is just the role of employers in this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so whether we will see a world where the employer has maybe more duties, and it's not in this consultation, but whether that's the kind of reaction and the direction of travel that, that kind of might come. Yeah, we we did pick this up with Sapphire again last week. Um, that, you know, a lot of employers have chosen their pension schemes for compliance reasons. Mm. You know, and and manifestly, most of them are in, in pretty good schemes. Yeah, a lot of them in Nest. So you'd hope it would be good. Um, but you know, you're you're, you're very rarely going to. Oh, it's going to be incredibly difficult to get employers to you know look at value for money assessments, especially if they're small employers. Yeah, and um, and even more difficult to get um, employers to take action on it. Um, but I think you know that is balanced by the fact that. You know, you've got master trust authorization, and ultimately, this is a transparency game as well. Yeah. You know, yeah. so if you've got certain schemes that aren't performing up to scratch, then you know, you would hope the employers would vote with their feet. But if they don't, you know, they're going to get called out within the industry anyway. Yeah. Um, which th- which sort of leads us on to the rag rating. Yeah. Because um, the rag rating is, is you know, I, I quite like rag ratings. It sort of um, sets things out quite nicely mm. and, and 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 quite clearly and stuff. But you know, do you, is anyone going to mark themselves a red? Do you think? Well, this is depends on what we decide to take forward for the consultation. Yeah. So yeah. We've no, no, the, of course. Yeah. yeah we've got the benchmark. Hypothetically speaking. Hypothetically. So, to my mind what must happen is if a scheme is underperforming we've given the opportunity to improve yeah. that improvement's not forthcoming members some of the analysis i've seen over a five-year period because i lost 50 percent just from being in a low performing scheme compared to a mm-hmm. high performing scheme i know there's reasons behind that it could be that is a immature scheme and it's up against the stubborn but 50 percent is a huge yeah, gap yeah, yeah. Um, for the average saver 10 especially 10, if that saver hasn't made a choice yeah, yeah. that's the thing yeah. it's not you know yeah. so 10 i think the example we give a save with a pot of ten thousand pound could have lost five thousand pound over five years. Yeah. That's 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 not right. That's not fair. So what action do we take? Mm. Um, so we have the value for members assessment where schemes do self comparisons. Mm-hmm. Would would that work if we're looking to take action and, and wind up a scheme, which we propose in the consultation document? It'd be interesting mm-hmm. to see what people's views are on that. Mm-hmm. Or do we need more stringent? Uh, benchmark regulatory led approach yeah. which is one of the options we've put forward in the consultation yeah but i think the key point is something must happen we can't 
savers deserve action to be taken on their behalf yeah. if they if they're not engaging we've we've auto enrolled them they need to they need to know that government will take action or regulators will take action yeah and i think in that world of inertia you know you do need that sort of strong regulation and, yeah. and stuff yeah. so i think um it it, it it makes a lot of sense um is, is this all about scale uh, is 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 it, is it all about scale and consolidation or do you think that you know smaller schemes can provide value for members or value for money yeah well small schemes can because they do there are small schemes that are performing well um and we're not proposing that those schemes are forced to consolidate mm. what we are saying to them and we say in the consultation document is have a look mm. would your members be best served being in a bigger scheme with mm. the economies of scale the extra buying power the um ability to access expertise to to do more sophisticated investments so we want smaller schemes to look at that angle yeah. we do propose we look we talk in the conduct about scale tests yeah have you got the right scale so it's all about back to members best interest but a spin-off of the value for money framework is that it should drive further consolidation so the government's view and it has been our, our view for a long time is uh, consol- consolidation into bigger, better-run, well-governed schemes is in members' best interest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's becoming clear now that the large schemes do have the buying power to have more diversified investment strategies, which should lead to better long-term outcomes for savers. Yeah, and that's only going to sort of manifest itself more um, as time goes on and the you know, contributions keep coming in and these schemes just get bigger yeah. and bigger and bigger. Yeah, I think so. I wanted to take... Uh, Maybe it's a slightly different tack and, and very deliberately not putting you on the spot there, right? So, because uh, I, I imagine, and this is true across the whole civil service, right? So, so essentially, you are this massive tanker which has a certain momentum. And then, obviously, there's a political policy world which can try and turn that, that, that kind of tanker. Um, and you rightly won't comment on that politics, and we're not, I don't want to go there. But uh, there must be times when essentially the civil service itself kind of understands that this is a likely kind of this this intervention would work. Um, how how does that come into the political agenda? How does that kind of get raised to ministers? Is that just sort of just a, is that natural, or are there kind of specific kind of ways for that to happen? I think that's just what we do as civil servants. Yeah. We have to give ministers honest, impartial advice. Oh, it's the old saying, isn't it? Ministers decide, civil servants advise. So right. obviously <clears> they've got their political objectives. It's slightly, I would say, slightly easier in the pension space because there's a lot more. Uh, consensus across parties so we had our performance fees debates yesterday Mm -hmm. that the minister did in the the house of commons and labor the shadow pension minister was supportive of the of the liquid agenda yeah obviously raised concerns about member protection which is which is concerns that we we share as well so there is a bit more consensus on Mm -hmm. pensions it's it's a lot more joined up yeah Um, but i do i do take the point there can be challenges but our job is to clearly uh, say to ministers, these are the potential risks, these are the mitigations, yeah. and, and then it's their decision, but we just need to give them evidence-based, impartial advice. Yeah, when I was a civil servant, um, it's amazing the collaboration that you get, actually. It's not that you just have a minister that comes in and says, right, I just want to do X, Y, and Z, yeah. and that's all you're focusing on. Um, you know, part of the job of civil servants is to, you know, as Des says, identify the risks, you know, um, look at longer term trends, think about what policy environment should yeah. look like in the future. So, you know, civil servants can 
you know, put up advice and says, well, we think you should look at this minister because there's an emerging risk here. Mm -hmm. You know, equally, ministers can turn around and say, you know, Des, I want more pension schemes to invest in illiquid assets, right. sort yeah, it out. Yeah. You know, so, but but but, but it, it can come from either, yeah, either yeah, or, yeah. you know, and, and, and stakeholders and stakeholder views are really important on this as well, actually. Yeah, because it's a sort of, you know, you guys are the sort of hidden machine, the unsung heroes of the industry, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I've never been, I've never crossed the line in terms of the, becoming a civil servant, right? Uh, so, so, you know, from the outside, it just feels like it's a, you know, it's a political discussion and the civil service is sort of carried along with that. But then obviously when you think about just the process, I, I, it's just fascinating to me. We try um, to stay hidden, but doing podcasts and, <laughs> no, exactly. and conferences make that a bit more difficult. Well, you did, um, you, you, you did um, the, the pension playpen, didn't you, on the launch of the consultation? I did. Well. Yeah, that was a good session, that was. We yeah. enjoyed that. And it's good, you know, it, it really helps with the industry engagement. It really helps the industry understand where the government and the civil service and, you know, the department is actually coming from yeah. by, um, you know, getting out and about, speaking to people. And, you know, apart from Nico, we're all pretty nice. We're all <laughs> sort of a, a, a nice bunch, I think. <laughs> you just have to take a while to understand what I said. No, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, I hinted at this earlier, Des, uh, um, and, um, and this was off the back of Nico's uh, news item, that obviously you're going to have to phase in these reforms. Yeah, there's, there's too much to do on day one. Yeah, And um, the, the, the whole thing about at retirement is going to be quite important. Um, I'm also thinking about how we can get CDC within this framework as well. Like CDC is going to be subject to the charge cap, going to need to ensure value for members or value for money within CDC arrangements. Um, but we know that there's a lot of consolidation going on mm -hmm, at the mm -hmm. moment. Yeah, and you know, to my mind, that's a good thing. Yeah, and if and if people make choices and people want to move out of their let's call it the workplace space and go into the retail space or you know vice versa, yeah, yeah it's you know, power to the people on that. I, I think, you know, that choice is really, really important. Um, but but the retail side is sort of out with phase one of this thinking. And I know we've chatted about this, Nico, a bit. Well, and um, uh, we've been called out we've for been our, called out. our chat. Yeah, um, we have been called out on the chat. But I just wanted to sort of um, understand your thinking on that, Des. Like, because, you know, sequencing, yeah, we get, right? Too much, too, you can't boil an ocean, right? But is there a risk that if we don't have some of these retail consolidators in phase one, then mem that we risk giving members sort of partial picture, partial information? Whereas actually, you know, if, we, if we're giving people who are going to look to actively consolidate comparable information insofar as you can compare it, which I think is your point yeah, on yeah. some of this, then, you know, um, would that lead to better outcomes? Yeah, so I, I do take on board the point but I'd go back to we are starting from where we are at the moment, which is we have no value for money framework at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Most savers are in workplace defaults. So that's the idea is to start there, get the framework in place, yeah. totally accept some of the retail offerings aren't maybe delivering value for money for members, some of their... Well, so, so some, of the the, yeah. Yeah. some of the workplace yeah. ones. Right. So, so that's not a surprise. It's more yeah. the comparison and the choice. That's uh, yeah. that's that's where I'm coming well, from. You, but I, I think you're arguing for the comparison at the moment of choice, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so just the, the debate that we've been having, and it, oh, we're on well, the third episode where this has come up, <laughs> um, is so, so from my perspective, I think, you know, this is an inertia product. It's a default that you're reviewing as a value for money assessment. Um, I think I said at the start, 
you know, its accumulation to me is more important. Yep. Um, and creating a framework which could extend to decumulation, I think for me would be the critical piece of feedback to the to the consultation. As soon as we go into even self-select, we're in very strange territory comparing that to the things that the trustee determined. Yeah, because you value different things. Well, but if the framework is returned and returns through life, then it could be that my ethical choices or a whole bunch of bad decisions that I took knowingly are still good value for money in the way that you gave me the choice and you yeah. told me about it, but I might have much worse returns. Yeah. So how on earth do you have a framework which kind of is so heavily on the returns mm. piece, which then says, yes, but it's fine that you make a choice which essentially harms you. Right. So it's this space of libertarian paternalism, where do you draw the line? Yeah. Uh, and my argument in defence of retail pensions, and essentially I feel I've been misunderstood maybe a little bit on this, <laughs> uh, is that we're, we're really talking in a place where the value is choice. Yeah. Where the how thousand do you value fund choice? options... How do you value choice? Well, not in a framework which is dominated by returns. Mm. Um, because fundamentally the reason for choice is not uh, just to get out and out performance across a big averaging of a population yeah. um, and, I, and I think you have to call it out as a different thing in a different value for money framework for me yeah. um, and uh, I'm sure the retail pensions guys once, once they're allowed to understand what I'm trying to say <laughs> Uh, would probably be sympathetic to my argument there, but we shall see. You know, so, so not to push you on this, does but yeah. like, uh, phase two, you know, um, is it a long grass? Phase two, is it a long way away? Um, or, or can you can, see, can do you see a world where there is some momentum after you've done phase one? You get that up and running, you get the feedback, you see how it's implemented, and then you can sort of can start considering some of these even more knotty issues. Yeah. So. In some respects, we are constrained by parliamentary yeah. timetables yeah. as well. Current governments can't commit future governments and all of that. Type yeah, of thing. A lot of the proposals we're proposing, particularly on the workplace side, uh, winding schemes up would require primary legislation. Yeah. The, le the types of disclosure we would need are likely to require primary legislation as well. So that sort of ties us on the workplace side. Yeah. On the retail side, F FCA have different rulemaking powers. Yeah. So once we've got phase one in place... I can't really speak for FCA colleagues, sure. but there is there is ways we could do the second phase in some areas more quickly. Yeah, um, and probably on the retail side of the FCA, they do have their own rulemaking powers. Because the FCA, and it, uh, you know, you only find this out when you start working on this stuff. But the FCA is can make secondary legislation. Yes. It's got a power from Parliament under the Financial Services and Markets Act that its rules are actually secondary legislation, which is quite unusual and quite unique, isn't yeah. it, for so, a regulator? Yeah, there's TPR don't have those powers, no. so obviously TPR is a bit more constrained, but it does mean we may be able to do certain aspects of Phase 2 more quickly. Yeah, so, um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's such a fascinating space. Um, so, uh, again, without putting you on the spot, because <laughs> my question is not going to be, will there be a pensions act this year? Uh, but just talk us through the kind of legislative process. So, um, you know, on the assumption and without you getting to comment that there's some sort of act to be drafted, does that come into your department? So you, have you got the lawyers kind of doing that work or where, where does that actually sit? Well, Ultimately, this is one that's out with my pay grade, so it's ah, a, yeah. a decision for ministers. If ministers see this as a priority then, and they support sure. a, a pen, another pension schemes bill, this parliament already time into tight because yeah. we've, um, we must have a general election, I think it's by 20, 
It's the end of 24, isn't it? It's the beginning of 24, 25. Yeah. So that already constrains the, the parliamentary timeline. Yeah. So if if ministers ministers agree that the money framework is yeah. a, a priority amongst, there's a lot of other priorities yes, yeah. across government as well, um, lots of other pressures. But if this is one of the priorities and, and they support a, a bill bid, then we will have to um, react to that. It, it would mean responding to the consultation. Um, we we need to have done that and given the, give the industry a clear direction of travel, yeah. and then we, it would be full swing and preparing a bill bid, which is a lot of work for yeah. our, the team at DWP and FCA and yeah, it's your team and TPR. The, 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 yeah, the and they would they yeah. would be swinging behind that and yeah. to deliver it as best they can. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that would show I I I push back that there's not been momentum with this. We've had mm. the TPR FCA discussion paper response quickly followed by our previous minister, Guy Opperman, DWP will be consulting yeah. before the end of the year. We actually, despite a couple of changes in ministers, we still got the consultation out in January. So we're, we're very much behind this and trying yeah. to drive it forward. Yeah. I think we've said we're trying to respond to this before the summer, which right. is, so we are moving God, at a, pace. Yeah. Um, we've been criticized for only having a, an eight week consultation period, but we're trying to maintain that yeah. momentum. There's reasons we've done that, so it will enable us more time to consider responses and draft a yeah. consultation response. But we really want to give the industry a, a clear signal in our response. This is going to be the direction of travel, yeah. and this is where we've landed on some of the more knotty issues. Yeah. Uh, do you, how many oral, oral responses do you get? Uh, is this going to be the first first podcast, response, podcast to consultation? response to a consultation? No, I don't think we have. Um, but obviously, breaking new ground. Oh, really? Conferences are all responses, aren't they? It all feeds uh-huh. in. Yeah. Um, so we're not that innovative or that new, yeah, that's what you're no, saying. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, we might get 120, 130 people listening to our yeah, response, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which will probably be more than would read it. So, yeah, um... exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was on a call yesterday, was it a call? Yeah, it was a call yesterday, and um, we were talking about the, the consultation day that you had. And um, Big Monday. So, big Monday. <laughs> Power Monday. And, um, you know, I, I heard a couple of people just sort of say, well, you know, oh, it's the pressure that DWP are putting on the industry at the moment, you know, um, there was a CDC consultation, there was a small pop consultation, there was a value for money consultation, it all came out at the same time and, you know, and I was like, well, hold on a minute, yeah, um, and I actually said this in the meeting, yeah, like, we moan, yeah, when DWP do things in a real piecemeal way and just bleed stuff out over the space yeah. of a couple of years and you, you can't see the overarching direction of travel, yeah, and, um, you know, but then when DWP puts everything out together, you get no amount of people moaning and stuff. So you're damned if you do and if you're damned if you don't. But I thought one of the really good things um, about having it all together, and timetables are tight and stuff, but it shows momentum, as you were saying, Des, is that you could actually see how value for money ties in with, um, small with, uh, with small pots. pots. Yeah. Yeah, you, can, you can actually see how value for money ties in with their productive finance stuff. You know, you can, you can, you can, you can see how... Um, you know, CDC fits in with the future direction. And I think, that, I can't remember what they were now, and I haven't got my notebook with me, but the minister was talking about fairness, predictability, mm-hmm. yeah. and there was adequacy. one other, and adequacy, yeah. And and just having that sort of framework and sort of long-term vision yeah. in a joined up way, it didn't include everything, There's gap, yeah. there were gaps yeah. and stuff, but I thought that was quite refreshing, to be totally honest with you. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I guess you've got a whole bunch of people who are gonna to respond to the consultation and it all falls on one set of shoulders in each organization. Um, and uh, you know, in the bigger consultancies, they're going to want to respond to all of the yeah. bits of the consultation. We get the luxury of just picking and choosing. Oh no, I'm I'm, I'm actually responding to all of the consultations. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a fourth one that we've forgotten? 
Is there a fourth constitution? No, it's productive finance. Uh-huh. So response to the regulations. Response to the regulations, oh, okay. yeah. So should we come on to that? Because we, uh, you and I, Des, are both uh, on stage this afternoon, uh, which will be yesterday by the time uh, you're listening, but uh, at a PPI event talking about alternatives and uh, illiquid, illiquid investment. So, uh, yeah, you, you must be monitoring progress in this sector. Um, how's the kind of mood, mood at the moment? Uh, the mood music is so... UK schemes are still not investing a great deal in illiquid assets. That could be for a number of reasons. They don't have s- scale. Obviously, the charge cap's a factor as well. That's been identified as a barrier, and we've we've announced that we'll be uh, making am- amendments to that to allow performance mm. fees to set outside of the charge cap. Um, but I think it's still, if you look at UK schemes, 7% investment in liquids. You look at Australia, 20%. You look yeah. at the USA, around 19%. We're, we're, we're behind yeah. it. We don't want to tell schemes how to invest. That yeah. must be and remain a matter for trustees. But there are some good investment opportunities out there that schemes should be exploring. Um, if they don't have the scale or expertise to do that, then that feeds into the consolidation agenda. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're asking me, would members be better served having a more diversified investment before portfolio? I think they they would be. Yeah. 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 I think it's right. And 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 you know, a lot of focus has been on the charge cap. But as we were talking about earlier. You know, a lot of this is market dynamic. Yeah. Um, so, you know, are, are, are you, you know, is, is, is the change to the charge cap the government signalling that, you know, performance fees are okay? Yeah. And it's totally appropriate for schemes to think about those types of structures when it comes to investing. Or do you think that by removing the, the requirement on the charge cap, that, you know, that's going to in itself spark a huge degree of additional investment in liquid assets and productive finance? I, f- I think we need to look at this in the round, don't we? So uh, alongside what we're doing with the charge cap, you've had the work of the productive finance working group. Yeah. You've got uh, HMT colleagues taking forward the long-term asset fund. Yep. So there's a lot of um, support for investment in these areas. The charge cap in itself, will that drive more investment? It, it may do, yeah. it may not. It, my expectation would, is that it's probably only going to be the larger schemes at first that take advantage of performance fees because they'll yeah. have that expertise and they'll be able to understand them you know they'll be better placed to, to do that but i think the knock-on impact is once those people start seeing the improved returns the more we'll be looking to take advantage of it yeah. but we've been clear throughout on the charge cap trustees should only enter into performance fee arrangements where it's clearly in the members best interest yeah. Yeah. and we've put in the regulation measures where performance fees are only payable when they've delivered for the members as yeah. an improved return yeah what's your view on a performance fees nico do you like them do, do you do you know do you think they have a place like because because yeah. you know I, I i sort of when i think about this like if we can create alignment of interest between the investment manager you know and the scheme that's surely got to be a good thing and performance fees are one way of doing that um but is the asset manager exposed to the downside on this stuff enough or is there too much of an asymmetry in the construction of these fees? Yeah, no, I, I might jump over that, uh, but I'll probably come back to it. So, so I think my first question would be, how do I make sure that the performance fee is charged to the member who benefited from the performance? Yeah. And operationally, that is a big ask. That is a very big ask. Right. Um, so the structure of lifestyling means that we're all in the same fund. Uh, if there is a 10% exposure to a performance fee uh, asset, 
uh, and that charge only becomes due at the moment that we know that the performance happens, then what happens if I retire the day before and uh, swap my contributions with the 22-year-olds who's made their first contributions and they get the charge? Yeah. So trustees are going to have to work through, uh, and you know their platforms, quite a complex challenge. So if you have uncapped performance fees, I think it, it's, it is difficult. I, I was thinking when I was at TPP around, so, you know, you, you cap it because you've got the scale to go and have that negotiation. Maybe you can accrue the performance fee all the way through um, and you can work out kind of rebates and then you, you kind of jump over, you know, everybody's all in it together, but yeah. the 22-year-old doesn't pay that performance fee because it's already been accrued in the, in the performance. Do TDFs help with this? Um, well, no, because you can still be under auto enrolment. You may still have a 65-year-old who makes the first contribution into that target date fund. Yeah. Um, so what you really need is the history. Um, what I think is, so I was talking to some Americans uh, over the last few days, um, and maybe coming back into accumulation as well. They have the Secure Act, yep. which enables them to put annuities under safe harbor within essentially default arrangements. Yep. Uh, and one of the uh, companies is essentially enabling you to build up essentially a deferred annuity through life but needs to, and wants to pay loyalty bonuses because they're a not-for-profit mutual and that's how their business operates. So how on earth do you get a knowledge of whether it's a 22-year-old who's now 72 and buying their annuity versus a 65-year-old who swapped money in at that point and bought an annuity? Right, yeah. You need to get the data which gives you that track record. So, you know, that's a sort of negative performance fear, loyalty bonus yeah. on, a, on a kind of deferred annuity. It's the same kind of structural challenge to be ultimately like individualistically fair so somewhere in the mix is this debate about collective fairness mm. versus individual fairness and i think dc comes up against that time and time again self-select i pay for self-select but i don't use it as a default member right i pay for a platform that enables me to make choices i never do yeah very very kind of uh, wicked problems right so yeah and then performance fees i do believe in the alignment point um, I mean, I was uh, part of what was called the Patient Capital Review, which is maybe the precursor. Um, and uh, I do remember kind of debating with Nest uh, about 2 and 20, where they essentially said, We'd, we really don't like performance fees. We'd rather pay 3 and 0. And I said, no, I love performance fees. I'd rather pay 0 and 30, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think you'll find opinions on both sides of that. Yeah. Ultimately, uh, performance fees only kick in when you get the performance, um, albeit with discussions about American and European waterfalls and all sorts of very technical stuff. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm sympathetic to it. I think we do have to realise that DC is just not, on the global capital markets, a price maker. The asset classes have performance fees. They are uh, funded by global capital and DC actually, particularly at the scales we're talking about, is a small part of that. So it probably has to to get into private equity, the right private equity, it probably has to pay performance fees. Yeah. And so there is a challenge for the industry to work out how on earth to operationalise that. Right. Um, we still do, I think, need to have a conversation about when we're talking about illiquid assets, which illiquid assets. So I 100% get property, 100% get infrastructure. You can probably haggle me around to private equity and venture capital. But like hedge funds are dead, right? I mean, like nobody wants hedge funds, really, right? Mm. Um, perform uh, pr property and infrastructure don't have performance fees. Mm. So, what are we actually? Is this part of the leveling up agenda? So, in which case, performance fees is like a moot point. 
is this part of the, the it was the science superpower agenda yeah. in which case performance fees are desperately important mm. so i think there's there's a lot kind of bundled into this productive finance or, or patient capital agenda and it's it, it, teasing those out are going to be really really important interesting interesting i have one last question go on um so obviously you've been leading the charge or the the the, the um shepherding the charge on yeah. uh, tcfd um biodiversity when i when i've been talking about tcfd in the industry biodiversity is kind of like one of the footnotes um so you know there's a narrative which says we can't really achieve uh, climate change uh, transition without maintaining the natural environment do you think that like biodiversity natural capital that's going to be kind of the next thing that uh, on that kind of esg sustainability agenda kind of comes under that kind of regulatory political purview or do you think that's a long way off I think at the moment our focus on is on bedding the sort of TCFD regulations, mm. learning from that. But biodiversity is a is a risk, is a material risk. So yeah. that's I can see that coming up the agenda. It's not at the moment one of our key priorities, but it's certainly going to come up the agenda because, as I say, this this can have an impact on investments. There's a risk there, and it's only going to get worse in future. So. Yeah. I can see it creeping up the agenda. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And um, we've talked before about the uh, we're in the DG Publishing Pod. Oh yes, yeah, we are. We are in yeah. the pod, uh, which is which is absolutely fantastic. And thank you very much to DG Publishing. And um, we're at the zoo on the twenty third, as we mentioned before. Yeah, but, so that's um, the impact and responsible investments summit. That's the one. Iris. That's the one, Iris. And um, we've just confirmed, or they've just confirmed, that um, Fergus Campbell, mm. who's a, a sustainable finance advisor at the zoo. Is going to be giving a keynote speech yeah. on biodiversity. Oh, well, there we go. What uh, a segue. Which would be, which would be really good. <laughs> it was almost planned, wasn't it? <laughs> it's got a, a fantastic agenda, hasn't it? It's got you and I on it. So. Yeah, well, I'm, 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 I'm interviewing you, I think. Or, 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 I'm chairing a You're question. You're moderating questions yeah, for me. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm going to give you all the difficult ones. So if, if you want to get your own back desk, just let me know. Just, <laughs> drop, just drop me an email and um, I'll ask Nico some difficult questions. Um, Other events coming up? What else have we got? Well, you, you, you've already mentioned the one you're doing this afternoon, which will be yesterday. Which will be yesterday. But read the report. I think a yep. uh, very interesting report from the PPI. Um, so, yeah, there's the DC Strategic Summit coming up on the 15th of May. Uh, there is my launch of my TCFD research um, yep. with the Defund Contribution Investment Forum on the 28th of March. So that's, that's starting to hope interview. Yep. I've got a hot announcement. I'm doing the pay pen, playpen myself. Are you? Yeah, I am next so, week. So Henry uh, invited you and not me? Uh, well, Steve invited me and I think he's giving Henry the job of telling me off. Um, so oh, we should be... <laughs> I'm sure the sparks will fly. It'll be a fascinating debate. Excellent. Um, so I believe St Steve has posted that on LinkedIn this morning. Uh, um, so, yeah, I'll be talking about custody platforms, life platforms. Oh, because yeah, you, you did a briefing note on that, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So why, particularly for illiquid assets, yeah. why we need to get rid of life companies from the DC investment chain. Yeah. Um, so as controversial as I possibly can be, uh, dial in. Well, I'm, I've, I've got a meeting at that time next week. But, um, <laughs> I believe it's recorded. It is, so I'm definitely going to watch it back. Um, Des, is there anything you want us to leave us with? No, just... Um, Good luck to um, Arsenal in the league, because I, <laughs> I think you might need it, because I think Arsenal may wobble in the run-in. Yeah, because that's an interesting one, because I thought that, because we, we went for a little bad spell, yeah. didn't we? Um, uh, lost to Man City, obviously, lost to Everton. Drew, uh, drew with um, Brentford. Yeah, and I, I thought that was a wobble, but since then we've come back quite strong. Okay, we've left it a bit late a couple of times, yeah. but... 
No, but thank you for your best wishes. Like, <laughs> yeah. but, it, but it is. We're past them on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, um, you know, like, for, for, for me, even qualifying for the Champions League this season, you know, was going to be a, a huge milestone. And to be still in with a chance, but actually to be leading the table in March, if you'd have said Arsenal be leading the table in March, I'd have said absolutely never. So, yeah. you know, I'm just taking Hopefully. the glory while it's uh, going. <laughs> so without talking about the football stuff, I think it's just a really interesting case study in leadership. Uh, performance management, and you know you've got a you've got a team of twenty people. Obviously, you only have eleven on the on the field at one time, but one or two new faces yeah. in that group who who you have talent managed to be filling holes yeah. can make this this massive systemic yeah. difference to that whole group. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, Mikel Arteta is the one that you kind of just go. Who saw that coming? I just didn't see no, that coming. No, I didn't. No. Um, so the man management, the, the sort of psychology that he's brought to it, I think is is, is really really interesting. Um, so yeah, thanks, Dan. Thanks, um, yeah. No. Thank you very much for for coming on today. It's, it's been no really problem. really great. Having Good luck, you. Celtic, as well. We Thank have you. to return that. Yes, we do. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so you'll find us on all good podcasting platforms. Yeah, and some battles too. <laughs> <laughs> um, we uh, to comment on us uh, on this episode, uh, please do kind of like and subscribe on our LinkedIn posts. Yep, yep. Uh, by all means, stick a comment there. Uh, you can also get in touch at vfmpensions at gmail dot com. Uh, and uh, yeah, comments there, uh, or if you want to put yourself forward as a guest, yeah, in the future, future yeah, always up for you know, chatting to people. Um, speaking of which, we've got I think Julius Purcell next, next week, week. yeah, um, and then we've got Mike Berners Lee, uh, the renowned um, climate scientist, and we've also got Joe Cumbo lined up from the FT as well, haven't yes. we? Yes, so yeah, looking yeah. forward um, to. To that. So that closes out March, um, and then uh, yeah, our live episodes. Darren's going on holiday to Lanzarote, so uh, we will fill that space. We will uh, with our consultation response. So uh, by all means, listen into that. Yeah, we don't have to agree in our consultation response to readers. Like, no, you know, no. Okay, we'll do it. Who shouts the loudest? Who shouts the loudest? <laughs> well, brilliant. Thank you very much, Des. Um, no, thank you, guys. Great sport. Thanks for appearing on the podcast, mm. and um, yeah, good luck with the consultation. And um, you're certainly pulling the industry in the right direction. Thank you. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.